Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's talk radio show about opera, period. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by Oliver Camacho. We are live on WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago, and streaming live, wnur.org slash pop-up. 847-866-WNUR is the number in studio. Hey, be one of our listeners who gets to have their say on air. Call us. 847-866-9687. Tonight, I go inside the huddle with composer Stuart Copeland. His fifth opera, called The Invention of Morel, opened last week at Chicago Opera Theater. He and I, we talk sports, rock, music, and, of course, opera. Hey, plus, find out what his definition of fun is. That's in 20 minutes. But first, Oliver and I break down the Metropolitan Opera's 2017-2018 programming announcement. Get our advice on what's a must-see in NYC next season. 9.40 p.m., two-minute drill returns triumphantly. All the opera headlines from the past week that you need to know about. You get our hot takes on them. Tobias Wright might even call in from Sarasota if he's uh, not busy drinking. Oliver, he's probably drinking right now, don't you think? Uh, what's the time zone over there? They're an hour ahead of us? Yeah, 10 oh, yeah, o'clock. Then for sure it's drinking time. Yeah. 10 o'clock on a Monday. But he might have to, you know, sing in the morning. I wonder how much <laughs> rehearsing he, he actually does. Can you imagine, like, seriously, doing a show in Florida? Wouldn't you just want to be outside all day? I, I have no interest in Florida. I have no interest in marijuana. I have no interest in cocaine. And all those things to me are the same, so... Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like to me, Florida is a place for leisure yeah. and for and and for um, you know relaxation. Uh, and I don't. I'm not a relaxed person. <laughs> <laughs> have, have you been to Disney World? Nope. Okay. Yeah, my parents were. Very, they stopped uh, treating me like a child probably by the time I was like eight or nine. It's like yeah. you're old enough to like entertain yourself you know so i didn't get to do like fun things other kids got to do so i that's probably how i became a homosexual and fell into opera you know you're so. an only child no i have two older brothers but okay they put a lot of effort in those older brothers so i'm not bitter at all today there's no i'm totally <laughs> i'm a little bit here's the story folks um my show was yesterday and i'm just kind of decompressing and for those of you who are performers you know like you put a lot of energy into a project and then you're in the project and you're doing it and then it's over and then suddenly you have this like post-performance low you know yeah so i'm i think i'm going through that this very moment it happens to the best of us yeah singers directors designers technicians designers sure their part of it is done so early i know but I, i think they have a certain love for every show there's a little spot in their heart and they're a little sad when it when it closes. Mm. Well, uh, that's we were just talking about this last week. Like sometimes the show lives on longer than the director's concept, even you know. Like look at these shows it. that are being revived from 1976. Like that's what that's what Hauke said. Uh, the Puritani that 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 uh, Lurk <laughs> is doing the production from 1976. So that guy's work is moving on. If you haven't uh, listened to last week's show on iTunes, yet, it's a gem, folks. It's really good. It's Amy Stebbins, Hauke Berheide were on the show. Go to our iTunes page. You can get. I know they're household names for all of you opera fans. Operaboxscore.com is the best way to they should uh, be. To get there. They should they, they should will be. be. Yeah. They will be. Yeah. They're so smart. Hauka's name will be on everybody's lips. <laughs> let's uh let's cut to the chase. Let's okay. let's do some chalk talk on oh, wow. the okay. Metropolitan Opera. Chalk talk on Opera Box Score. 
George Cedarquist again with Oliver Camacho. We didn't talk here. about sports yet. Yeah, this is it's really slow right now. Okay. It, look, football season is like a is chess over. tournament or something like that that we can cover. Uh, the NBA All Star okay. Game was last week. That okay. has less than zero interest for me. Oh wow. Uh, NHL All Star Game has come and gone as well. Tennis? There's no tennis happening right there. Now. Probably is, but that's it, like it, the. Um, Clay court season hasn't started yet, so that's when it gets interesting. French so. Open is on clay? Yes. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Roland Garros. Yeah. Roland Garros. Yeah. Probably Garros, probably. Garros. They probably say the yes. I'm not sure. Yeah. Anyway. Metropolitan Opera season announcement Yay! has come and gone. We were kind of waiting for this one. Yeah, I feel like we've come full circle. I think we did this a year ago, yeah. this story, and not much has changed. <laughs> it, well, is there, right. Is there a reason, do you think, that they are one of the last to announce? Um... I don't know because they want to be the biggest deal. I don't. I mean, I don't see the strategy at all. But yeah. I mean, a lot of companies have announced in the past couple of weeks, and maybe they just all like put together their calendars. I mean, a lot of the people that work for these companies, they all are friends with each other, and, sure. and I'm sure they, you know, they know who's getting Jonas Kaufman this week and who's getting Anna Trepko that week. So they must talk about these yeah. things. So, but yeah. I think the Met deserves the right to announce last. You mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. There's 24 total productions mm-hmm. on the roster for next year. Five of them, just five, are brand new productions. Here's my gut take on the season. We'll talk about it more in depth in a minute. I want to know your gut take, too. Mine is, this is a season designed to fill seats in a house that is regularly two-thirds full right now. When you look at this repertoire that's being planned, these composers these productions oliver what's your kind of first pass gut take when um, you look at the season as a whole that the oldest opera they're doing is marriage of figaro which is one of my favorite operas so i'm not complaining about that but uh in a year where monteverdi is gonna well is celebrating the 450th anniversary of monteverdi and where they've already cultivated baroque i mean they've done this enchanted island thing they've done some handle there's nothing earlier than mozart in this in this year which is disappointing and then there isn't a lot of modern opera either except for one one standout that's like way modern compared to everything to like you know it's puccini and then thomas Ades. you know exactly so. well let's i don't think we need to go in any particular order here we can just jump around a little bit why don't we start with the thomas Ades piece that's the Exterminating Angel, and that's it's right. something that's been, uh, it was composed in 2016, and it was seen already somewhere. Uh, it's at the, the Salzburg Festspiele. Okay. Yeah, and there's lots of uh, like interviews of Thomas Ades out there on the YouTube, and there's actually a complete performance, which you can hear, but not see. Be warned. I mean, the music, even I struggled with the music. I love contemporary opera as much as The Next Man, but... I, that music is challenging. I think the to next man probably doesn't love as much contemporary opera as much. Okay, as you, so, fair yeah. enough. Two guys down. Yeah, the yeah the show is at the Salzburg Festspiele, which is the fanciest of fancy Have festivals. You been? Oh my gosh, you kidding me? Never. I would okay. love to go. I would almost rather go no to drink, Salzburg folks. than to Bayreuth. Really? Okay. I think it would be be fun in a different way. I think I think there's a lot of celebrities to be seen mm-hmm. in Salzburg. Bayreuth is more the sort of fanatical mm-hmm. listener, audience member types, but anyone who's anyone wants to be kind of seen in the crowd in Salzburg. Too bad it's such a crummy town. Really? It's really boring. You can see why Mozart wanted to get out of Salzburg. <laughs> yeah, you can really How far see is that. Vienna? Uh, it's like the, it's the other side of the country, mm, basically. Okay, yeah. well, maybe I won't go. Thomas Ades, Exterminating Angel. It's the most contemporary piece on the list. It's the newest piece on the list. It's the only piece in English. No, there's so much in English this year. At the Met? Yeah. Okay, when am I, when am I missing? Then? They're doing uh, Hansel and Gretel in English. They're doing The Merry Widow in English. They're doing The okay. Magic Flute in English. Okay. It's the only piece originally composed in English. Oh. But obviously, yes, they can do pieces in translation. Yeah. That's That's fair enough. No, and like it sort of falls in the part of the season where they're doing all these other stuff. So like there's going to be a, like a solid like month or two months where everything's being English in, at the Mets. So. And I think that's by design, obviously, right? Is that they want to try and get more butts <laughs> more and seats. More Americans in seats. Yeah, exactly. Squeeze them in, cram them in. The production yeah. of Hansel and Gretel, it's the Richard Jones production, which is totally wacky and tons of fun. Mm-hmm. What are some of the old chestnuts that are coming back here? What are uh, some of the old chestnuts that are not coming back? That's well, a bigger question. Start with the Zeffirelli productions, Boheme, by Puccini, uh, Turandot, as well. 
is also a chestnut. Yeah. Um, the Zeffirelli that's not coming back is Tosca. No, 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 no. Back it up. They did uh, a couple years ago when Peter Gobb was new, the Luke Bondi, I think, or the Lauren Lor- Lor- Pelly. Is nope, it Pelly? No, you're absolutely right. Oh, Luke Bondi. The Luke Bondi Tosca, yeah. which was panned, completely panned, uh, because it replaced the Zeffirelli, and there was a big... Mm-hmm. People were very upset about that, <laughs> and it wasn't good, and it was not received well. And they said, "Well, maybe it was the cast, because like the first opening cast, maybe was not. I think it was Kelly Tomato or something like that. I forget who it was." So then they said, "Okay, wait until we get some like real star singers like mm-hmm. doing this." And so it was like, eh, "I still don't like it that much, you know." So they're replacing that new Tosca with a new Tosca, and this is going to be by David McVicker, I think. Sir. So David, David McVicker, McVicker yeah. to you. Yes. And David McVicker is all over this season. Like, I think he's like every other opera is a David McVicker opera, which I'm not mad about. Like, I, I like David McVicker. Actually, we're getting the McVicker Eugene Onegin, I think, this weekend at Lyric Opera. So there's definitely been some McVicker at Lyric in the <laughs> last season. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I can't remember if there is next year or not. I don't think there is. But he is a director who is so consistent and so solid, regardless of what you say about the inventiveness of his productions, which I personally think is lacking. You know that like it's going. It's a well-oiled machine, and it's going to have an interesting take, even if visually it is not the most surprising, arresting image. Mm-hmm. For example, the exciting part about the McVicker Tosca is that the stage is raked, which means it's on an angle. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good workout for the legs. <laughs> Singers hate it. So um, I'm going to get a little controversial here, and I'm going to fulfill some of the promise that uh, Norm Waddell's beautiful, or your, your commercial for this podcast promises. Um, I'm not excited about the first cast of Tosca. Uh, it's Christine Opelice. Um, who is currently singing Rizalka, um at the Met. And listeners will remember, I think we talked about this, maybe we talked about it on a different show, I'm not sure, um, that Christine Lopelis was the soprano who was brought in to sing Mimi the day after she sang Butterfly. Like The, the Mimi got sick, and so they supposedly called Christine Opelis, I'm doing air quotes right now, uh, first thing in the morning, say, oh, Christine, can you please sing you know, Mimi? Um, we don't have a Mimi, like there's a million Mimis in New York. Like you can't, you can't walk into a Starbucks without bumping into somebody who knows Mimi, you know? But anyway, so they got Christine Opelais to sing Mimi and it was a, it was a radio broadcast. And I think it was a publicity stunt. It's one of these like manufactured Peter Gelb things to make Christine Opelais a bigger star than she really wow. is. Her husband is the conductor uh, for this Tosca, Andres Nelson's. And I, I mean, she's fine. I mean, I I don't dislike her singing, but I've always found it to be a little bit low wattage and a little bit out of tune. And I can say that because I sing out of tune all the time. So, you know, it's like if it was if she was Filipino, I would say she's a Filipino. (laughs) So, but but the second cast is going to have Ana Dutrapka, which I would want to see that because I think that's the type of thing that she should be doing right now. Mm -hmm. The Trebs. The uh, Mozart is the earliest composition that's on the list this year and the production is Cosi Fan Tutte uh, it's Marriage of Vigros bef- comes before Cosi Fan Tutte but yes as a composer Cos- Cosi- Mozart is the earliest composer yes, on the roster yes, yes. right Figaro chronologically came before Cosi yes. if we're talking a- about the, er- the earliest opera it is, it is the Figaro the director of the Cosi is Thelam McDermott, who Say that twice. has, after a couple of gin and tonics, yeah, mm-hmm. he's directed a number of times at the Met before. He did Such a Graha mm-hmm. a couple seasons ago. Which was really well received. Yeah. He has such a great visual sense. Hmm. Uh, and the, I don't know if these are production photos or photos just of the scenic model that are on the Met website, but they look absolutely awesome. He set the piece in 1950s Coney Island. This makes sense to me. It makes total sense. And this is now, this is interesting. Talking about singers. Kelly O'Hara, who's a Broadway oh, star, this is, the thing, is singing yeah. Despina. You're <sighs> rolling your eyes and you're I, sighing into your mic. I understand why they're doing that. Why? I don't like. Because it's going to bring her audience, you know? It's like when they tried to get uh, Kristen Chenoweth singing in Ghost of Versailles. It's like, it's a stunt, you know? And it is a sabrette role. And there are so many sabrettes, and it's not fair that, like, you know, 
they're one of the few operas that actually gives a soubrette a lot to sing. Uh, they're casting a musical theater person in it, who I'm sure she'll be fine, and I'm sure she'll act her her melons off, you know. But I don't want to hear that type of technique in this opera. Maybe she has a legit technique. I don't know. I've, I've never heard her sing that style before. But it's not. I mean, she's gonna have to sing like high A. I think there's even a high B in in Despina's role somewhere. Ooh, ouch. Yeah. She became known for. Light in the Piazza, mm. I believe. Yes. It's Opera Box Score on WNUR. Um, one living composer is on the roster. Three female directors are on a roster of 24 productions. What's missing from this roster, Oliver, in terms of singers that you would like to hear? When you look at these names, who makes you think that's odd that so-and-so is not appearing at the Met this season. Well, they're doing a lot of Bel Canto this year, and I'm glad that they have people like Angela Mead and Jamie Barton and Sandra Bradonofsky, um in big Bel Canto roles. Um, people who are not appearing this year, uh, actually Fred Plotkin uh, wrote a really nice analysis of the season. Um, Dor- Dorothea Roschman, the German uh, soprano, she was featured not long ago in, I think, Marriage of Figaro. Um, Sarah Connolly, Alina Garancha, Tenor Paul Appleby, uh, Renee Barbera is not in the season. Juan Diego Flores, my husband, is not in the season. That is a big surprise. I thought the Met loved him. Well, I think they've swapped him out for Javier Camarena. Maybe Javier Camarena works for cheaper because he's Mexican. <laughs> <laughs> nice, dude. That was terrible. Those, those Peruvians yeah. cuss yeah. too much. Yeah, yeah. Um, all that uh, hair relaxer. No, what is the, what is the hair that makes your hair curly? Um, uh, he Joe, has that. Yeah, it's uh, like something. But hair, Juan Diego hair, Juan Diego's hair is always so perfectly curly and like a little bit wet looking. I'm thinking of Jerry Curl. That's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, Jerry Curl budget. You know. Nice. So um, Janai Brugger is not in this season. Um, Eleonora Burrato, Burrato, according to Fred Plotkin, who was the uh, Michaela in the in last week's uh, broadcast of Carmen. By the way, the broadcast of Carmen was really great uh, with. Hmm. Um, Clementine something or other, some French mezzo named Clement, Clementine or Clementine, Clementine, because she's French. She was awesome. But uh, yeah, there's lots of people that are not in the season, and it's a shame. But uh, Amanda Majeski is singing Fiora Legia. I'm very happy about that. And we're, we are going to get uh, Norma with Angela Mead, which is going to be amazing. And they're doing Semiramide, which is an opera that is rarely performed in the U.S. because people don't like serious Rossini. They like the funny Rossini, you know. But uh, I love Semiramide as a show, and um, Angela Mead is definitely a singer I want to hear in that role. So, These omissions aside, clearly what the Met is presenting is some of the best singers in the world. But consider this question. This is actually from Jenna Douglas, who writes the website schmopera.com which is uh, based in Canada. Is this, a, is this a listener mail we're about to have? It's not. No, oh, I, okay. I was reading Jenna's um, website, oh. Schmopera, and she says, is it a fair trade-off for the Met to stay conservative with its season programming in exchange for offering the world's best opera talent? That's the question she poses, and I think it's, that is kind of the perfect question to sum up this season. In my opinion, no, it's not, because I'm always looking at the whole, right? I'm not just looking at the singers. I'm not just listening to the singers. I'm experiencing the opera musically, textually, visually, and I want, I want the whole to be greater than the sum of its parts, basically, and that's not what this season is doing. I have to say that Amy Stebbins said something that was very thought-provoking uh, last week in about every time you do this piece, you have to take it anew and not just you know, plug in some singer into some already designed production. That We should work on these things fresh each time. And uh, I'm pretty conservative in terms of what my tastes are, but I do think that there has to be more contemporary opera in order for this thing to survive. You Because know? like, like she said, like... Um, you know, operas that are 30 years old are not new anymore, you right. know? Right. So. Uh, opera productions. Yeah. That are no, but even operas themselves that are 30 operas years themselves. old. Yeah, they're yeah, not new, exactly. you know? And, and we don't have enough. I mean, what is on our rosters that was composed in 1985, you know? Was there just no good opera written in 1985 or operas written in 1990, you know? Mm, yeah, that's a great pop quiz question, actually. <laughs> Name the best operas of the early 1980s. <laughs> yeah. 
Think about it. Let us know what you think. You can yeah. tweet us at Opera Box Score on that. But yeah, there's this big hole like between 19 whatever 30 and 19 and 2000 where there's not we don't have work from that era except like Benjamin Britten and there's no Britten on this uh, on this season, you know. Bernstein, I suppose, would fit into that time period. I'm not really convinced he's an opera composer. Yeah, I mm. mean, it is done in the opera house, as yeah. we talked about on some of the yeah, other Yeah, I forgot seasons. you like Jesus Christ Superstar and stuff like that. Dude, so. that's not Bernstein. Yeah, I know, but you like that stuff. I do like that stuff. I can't, no. I can't wait to see that show. Mm. So. Opera Box War on WNUR, 89.3 FM. Hey, after the break... He's a founding member of the band The Police. He's done 20 years composing for film, and he's written five operas. It's my interview with Stuart Copeland. Keep it locked right here on 89.3 WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. I didn't talk for a long time. I was sensitive to lights and sounds, so I built secret hiding places where they couldn't get in. Sometimes I do the same things over and over until one day I found out I had autism. My family got me help. Slowly, I learned how to live with it better. Early intervention can make a lifetime of difference. Learn the signs at AutismSpeaks.org slash signs. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. I adopted Bento in 2010 from a shelter. This cat makes me make art. He's always motivating me to draw pictures of him. He just is motivating artistically. He's my best friend, but a lot of people know him as Keyboard Cat. Keyboard Cat, YouTube star and shelter pet. Amazing adoption stories start in shelters. Start yours today. Visit theshelterpetproject.org to find a pet near you. Brought to you by Maddie's Fund, the Humane Society of the United States, and the Ad Council. Question, what will you find on all over-the-counter or OTC medicine packages to help you choose the right drug and use it safely? The answer, the drug facts label. This label lists the medicine's active ingredients and purpose, how much to take, and warnings you should know before using it. Remember, even OTC medicines you buy without a prescription can cause side effects you don't want. So follow the information listed on the drug facts label. For more information, visit FDA.gov slash drug facts label. A message from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Opera box score on WNUR 89.3. George Cedarquist here with Oliver Camacho. Hello. I saw The Invention of Morel. I can't wait to hear about it. On, on Saturday night. We'll, we'll do a, like a super quick Monday evening quarterback before okay. we get to Stewart's piece with me. You know, it was awesome. It was awesome. Uh, the music is definitely tonal. Mm-hmm. It's extremely rhythmic. Mm-hmm. I think you could predict that. This yeah. is a man who was originally the drummer. I think there were two percussionists in the pit. Awesome. And much of the music does have this like driving beat behind it. Mm-hmm. The story is complex. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to give any spoilers away. Mm-hmm. I think it's well designed for the Studebaker. I'm still torn about the Studebaker's acoustics. Mm. Do you have an opinion on that? It feels a little dry to me. Sonically. Yeah, it's dry. Okay. Yeah. So I'm not crazy about that. Yeah, but I think that um, with the right size voice, it should be fine. Yeah. I mean, they did Fairy Queen there, and I heard everybody, you know, and yeah. that's much, I mean, but it's much lighter instrumentation, you know. Were they mic'd? They were not mic'd. And I did question that. There were times when it was hard to hear the singers. Mm-hmm. And the lead character is sung by two people, basically a past version of the character uh-huh. and a present-day version. Oftentimes they're singing together, not necessarily in unison, sometimes okay. in thirds or other partials. Okay. Even then, occasionally it was hard to hear them. But I don't know if miking them was really the answer. I don't know if the staging needed to be changed. I don't know if the levels or the balance needed to be mm-hmm. changed. I, but it was occasional. there were balance problems. And there were balance problems, okay. yeah. But the story is compelling. You know, I, the music is catching. I felt that driving beat. You mm-hmm. know, when I was going out, the house was full. People were excited. Does this piece have a future? I think so. Yeah. I think it has a future. I, I don't think they're going to change it. 
You know, I, I think that Stuart Copeland, I'm, I'm guessing here, I think Stuart Copeland and Jonathan Moore, who's the librettist and the director, definitely after working on it for three years, I think they feel like it's like it's done. I assume it's going to go to Long Beach, yeah, where Andreas sure. Mitasek is also the artistic director, and it's going to be done there. But is it a piece that you would see again? I would see it again, yes, just because the plot is compelling enough. Mm. I mean, the plot moves fast. It moves like a TV drama fast. Mm. You know, there are not long sections of music where you're yeah. like, we get it, dude. Like, it really plugs along. And the supporting cast is is fantastic. And is the, are the characterizations uh, deep enough or fleshed out enough where different performers in these roles could make something different of it? Most definitely. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. The characters... Sometimes I, mean, I find, like, these new operas are so don't really give the singers a lot of chance to like be to do something it's like it's all about the composer you but know? this one being adapted from a short story or yeah. from a novella i think that sort of deep characterization has been built into the novel mm-hmm. and i think copeland and moore have successfully retained a lot of that mm-hmm. so yes i think that it does have a future and i do think that any singer could really take a different characterization and, and how is our man nathan live. he was great yeah nathan so, was he wearing was great. lots of scarves he was wearing a white uh, dinner jacket most okay. of the time. Valerie Van Zandt looked like yeah. a million bucks, of yeah. course. I saw that she had a brown wig on or something like that. She so. did have a brown yeah. wig on, yeah. yeah. Was yeah. She, she look more beautiful as a blonde or as a brunette? Oh, t- Oliver, I can't possibly <laughs> you're, mar- you're a married man. <laughs> <laughs> Check out what uh, Stuart Copeland and I talked about when I met with him backstage. This was about a week before the show opened. Do you watch sports? No. By the way? Well, I watch the Super Bowl because my wife decides has decided that that is a, a holiday, an official holiday. So she does tea and fancy cheeses and okay. no hot dog in sight. Okay. And she doesn't follow football. None of us do, but she figures that that's an institution. Therefore, we shall observe it. Do you play sports? No. No. How do you get? Exercise? Well, I did, and, and I, uh, I played polo. Okay. <clears throat> because you grew up, you grew up in partially in England. Um, in uh, Cairo and in mm-hmm. Lebanon and in England. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I'm in California. Okay. Uh, in L.A.? Yeah. Yeah? How is the Chicago winter treating you? This is not such a bad Chicago yeah. winter. In fact, I've been here for some Chicago winters, okay. which are just like, you don't forget that kind of cold forever. You know, I grew up around the Mediterranean. They don't yeah. do cold right. like this. Right, right, exactly. When was the last time you were in Chicago? Oh, not long ago, as a matter of fact. I was here with the Chicago Symphony. Okay. Uh, a little piece of mine uh, uh, called Ben-Hur, mm-hmm. which is actually a gigantic movie from, the eight, from uh, 1920. Silent, black and white, Ben-Hur, made 40 years before the Charlton Heston one. Oh, And it's much okay. bigger. They could afford bigger c- crew. It's not a cast of thousands. It's tens of thousands. And it's really ships crashing into each other, full ships in the Mediterranean on fire. And people died making it. The, the, the horse, the, the, the chariot race, they're not allowed to do that anymore. Good thing. But the, the production value is enormous. And the fact that it's not CGI'd, they set up a camera and they get 10,000 underpaid Italians to do it all. It's an unbelievable spectacle, and it's silent, which means that I could write a whole orchestral score with it. And I went to Warner Brothers and got them, persuaded them to let me curate the film. We dug out the 80-year-old celluloid, and it took 10 days to defrost. Uh, and we telecined it. It hadn't been out of the cans. The old girl hadn't been out of her cans since the <laughs> 60s. And they shot it to video, which is a terrible medium. So up till now, the only version of this movie is this terrible print on video, you know. So I, we, I telecined it and then spent two years curating it, fixing the contrast, dust and scratches. In one frame there was a fly slapped onto the frame there. And I said, what, what was that? And I look at it and there it is with its proboscis and its little legs, and you know, you know, like, like you'd find in the pages of a book or something like that. It's so flattened there forever. Is two years a long time to work on a project? Well, this opera, Morale, has taken me three and a half years. Does that feel long? I'm sort of getting the hang of long-form missions. You know, uh, in rock and roll, you do three-and-a-half-minute songs, or an album takes you a couple months or something like that. And you think in terms of that that's the thing. But in fact, a 90-minute opera or or a film like that with the orchestral score, which is wall-to-wall, it starts... 
before the movie starts and doesn't end until after the movie. So it's raging, you know, 60 guys with your humble servant on drums blazing for it. So these things are bigger and they take a long time, but they're not so intimidating when you've done a few of them and you know that you can embark on this journey knowing pretty confident that you're going to finish it. It was your daughter that gave you the book, The Invention of Morel. Yes, she saved me from Finnegan's Wake, but why, why? which was our original intention. Okay. We, in fact, I'd spent months chewing up Finnegan's Wake. I'm probably one of the three people who's actually read the okay. thing. Yeah, I only got halfway through it in college. Yeah, and, I, and I, it can only be done with... Anyway, I was talking to the heir, the Joyce heir, uh, Stephen, uh, and, um, Stephen Joyce, and he wanted like Hollywood blockbuster type you know, huh. fee for that. He's notoriously the most uh, hostile heir to any estate. Anyway, long story. My daughter saved me from that with Morel, which is actually a very slim volume. And that was the first thing that drew me to the story was that there's a story. And, and the cool thing for opera about a story with relatively few beats of the plot, it goes from this point to that point to that point, there's relatively few of them, is that there's more time for singing. Mm -hmm. And so it's all about atmosphere and this strange mystery, and it's a love affair, but there's something that I cannot reveal about that love affair that makes it a unique circumstance, and that's what opera is so good about. You know, that's really what opera is good at doing, that kind of thing. So it was, it was the form of it. It was that thinness yes. that caught well, your eye. It was eye. the thinness that, that was the you know, first thing. But once I read the book, I mean, it was, it yeah. was just, it, it's, it needed to be sung. So then why was Long Beach and Chicago Opera Theater, why were they the people that you wanted to bring it to or to, to build it with? Well, it was the other way around. Uh, they chose me. Uh, they actually, uh, the Long Beach Opera uh, put up another piece of mine, which was commissioned by the Royal Opera in London. And uh, they put it up in Long Beach, and we had such a wonderful time that the director, Andreas Mitasek, um, commissioned this piece. And he is also the artistic director of, of uh, Chicago Opera Theater, so that it was all kind of one big ball, ball of wax. Mm -hmm. Did he also pick Fulcrum Point to be the ensemble uh, for, as the orchestra? Yes, he did. Or, okay. And, Andreas Mitasek, I have to say, came into this project as the boss. He commissioned it, and he pulled it all together. And usually what they do in fine arts, that's why I do fine arts, mm -hmm. not film composing anymore, is because in, they kind of leave you to it. But Andreas is a creative guy, and he just can't help himself. And at first it was weird to have the front office coming in, but we soon realized this guy's worth listening to. And he would shake our house of cards until a wing falls off. And, you know, he's right, that, that didn't work. Uh, we got to solve this problem. And uh, so he really became like a third point to the triangle of this piece. The, the three points are you, him. Well, theoretically, and... it's supposed to be the librettist and I creating the piece, right. you know, and then I do the music. But Andreas just became so valuable as a kind of, he, just, he would shake us up and occasionally come up with great solutions to problems. And so we got to hand it to Andreas. He really, he really, was a part of our team. Composer Stuart Copeland on Opera Box Score. Jonathan Moore is the third side of the triangle or the third point well, on I the triangle? Well, I the first point, actually. <laughs> uh, you know, we both wrote the libretto, uh, which means that we both read the book, we chewed on it and figured out which of the, you know, the, the, the cruel, harsh process of redaction where you take some great work and you have to strip it away down to its bones and, oh, but I love that scene. But, you know, we, so we did that between the two of us. Then we divvied up the pages. Okay, you take this scene, I'll take that scene. And then, you know, we, we created a libretto. And then as we, uh, you know, Andreas got the resources to workshop here in Chicago, we had a bunch of actors, non-singing actors to act it out. And we could see right away that, oops, this is a problem. Oops, that's really cool. We need more of that, and so on. And so at that point, that's when Jonathan more and more began to kind of work his magic on it. And so we started pretty much together dividing up the pages. And I was looking for the language, the cool lines to sing. Ah, oh, that's a great line to sing. I love the way it says Fortunato. You know, he's looking for the plot points. 
And so th 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 that's the difference between our two briefs as we concocted this uh, libretto together. And now he's having to wear a hat as a director. Oh, he's a director. That's sort of what made him such a good librettist. Right. Because he knew how these scenes are going to play. And, I, and he would say, well, look, we can have him do this. And they go, how the hell are you going to do that on stage? He said, leave it to me. How much directing do you find yourself doing? None. Literally zero? Of course not. No, I don't know anything about directing. There's <clears> a lot of people know. who don't know anything about directing who uh, direct, right? Uh, I don't know anything about music. <laughs> uh, I did my finest work as a film composer, okay. which was my first film, I think, when okay. I didn't know how you're supposed to do it. Okay. So that's why Francis Coppola liked it, because uh, that's not how you're supposed to do it, you know? Mm -hmm. But um, in the case of, you know, I, at the end of a run-through, things that I observe, that's a bit weird, that there, what's going on there? And so I, I give him notes. And he says, ah, well, you see, when you see it, there's going to be staging to take care of that. Or, oh, good point. Uh, and so I get to, you know, give him notes. But Jonathan is the director, you know. So you've written other operas based on texts by Edgar Allan Poe. Yes. Right? Philip Glass has also done... Um, House Fall Usher? That's exactly right, yeah. So what is it about Poe uh, that makes it so attractive for this well, medium? Um, once again, his stories are short, which means plenty of room for singing. But the best thing about uh, Poe is the language. You don't have to write. The libretto is there. It, it, he has a very rhythmic style. His adjectives and his, you know, just his way he builds his sentence are very rhythmic in a way. Even his prose is, has a rhythm to it. And you, all I need to do to write Telltale Heart was just add a syllable here and turn a three-syllable word into a two-syllable, you know, but it, it, it just kind of wrote itself. The libretto was a piece of cake for that hmm. one. I wrote, I wrote that libretto myself, but actually it was Poe. And how about for Cask of Amontillado? <coughs> was that the same process for you? Because that was many years before Telltale the cask, Heart. The Cask of Amontillado came from David Bamberger, who was the man who commissioned my first opera back in 1981 or something. No, 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 it couldn't have been that. It must have been Whenever it was, in the 80s. Yeah. Uh, and he commissioned my first opera, which was called Holy Blood and Crescent Moon. <laughs> okay. Or as we used to call it, Holy, Holy Crescent and Bloody Moon, uh, which was an enormous, huge production of, um, you know, uh, cast, you know, every supernumerary in Cleveland was working that night. Okay. And uh, I was trying to be Verde because I thought that's what opera was supposed to sound like mm -hmm. until I got the review which said, well, they bring a rock and roll guy in here to be warmed over Puccini. Right. And uh, the penny dropped. So <clears throat> I realized then, and all my orchestral work since then, I'm not Verdi. We got Verdi. He's got that covered. But there's all kinds of more things that an orchestra can do and that opera singers can do. And my purpose on the planet is to take it forward. And uh, there's all kinds of tricks. I have those scores under my desk that I study for balancing singers, for what you can do to a soprano. I study those scores, uh, Puccini, Verdi, um, <clears throat> and also the orchestral works of, you know, uh, of um, Ravel, um, Debussy, Stravinsky, Aaron Copland, Karl Orff. <clears throat> you know, Ravel for the complex textures, Copland for clarity. If you want a clear piece, check out Rodeo. Billy the Kid. You know, that's the use of an orchestra, very clear. Whereas Ravel, what's going on? You know, it sounds such like one thing, but you look at the score and he's got arpeggiated stuff down here and he's got frills going over there, which you can't really hear, but it all adds, you know, it's a wash of a beautiful sound. Um, so my purpose is to bring my roots in campfire music, which is rock and roll, which is uh, music of the proletariat that is call and response. The audience is participating. There is much, you know, they, they shout and scream, which makes them feel better, which makes the band feel better, which makes them play better, which makes the people shout and scream more. And there's kind of a two-way street. And it is my mission to bring that life, that call and response, back into the concert stage. Composer Stuart Copeland on Opera Box Score. Would you ever go see Verdi or Puccini or Mozart, like, in production? Not Mozart. I would go see just for Ness and Dorma. I would go see me some, you know, yeah. some of that, you know, occasionally. Wagner, I've made the Hodge to Bayreuth 
Uh, I have stood on the on the conductor's platform there, and with uh, Wagner's grandson, who is the spitting image of uh, spooky. Yeah, spooky. Uh, and uh, so Wagner, I've got all the time for. But you know, anything before the turn of the century leaves me pretty cold. I study it. I revere it. I understand that its value to me is that that's what keeps the orchestras alive. And if those orchestras are alive playing Mendelssohn and Brahms, then I get to use those orchestras too. And so I appreciate that that's their mission. You know, a painting, all you got to do is throw a light on it and it's good for another couple centuries. Those great masterpieces of music, you've got to hire 90 guys and keep an institution like that. Very, It's really takes a lot of resources to keep that art form alive. And so their purpose is as a museum, honorably, you know, to be a museum for those pieces. While they're there, and since they're playing a show on Friday, and they got a little slot on the bill, how about we slip a living composer in there on the bill? And that's where I come in. What other living composers do you listen to? Uh, John Adams, Philip Glass, uh, Steve Reich, of course. Um, um, uh, Michael Torkey. Um, my mate uh, Turnip, Mark Anthony Turnage, uh, which is where I met Jonathan Moore, actually. Oh, okay. Uh, Mark Anthony Turnage and uh, Jonathan Moore um, made a piece together. Jonathan directed Turnip's piece called uh, Greek. Greek. And they had a big hit with that. And that's where I met both of them, and yeah. we became buddies ever since. Yeah, that is an awesome piece. That Amazing was just piece. done in it's Boston. Yeah, no, it's crazy. Yeah, it's still running around the world. Yeah. The next big thing in opera is small. That's something that we've talked a lot about on our show in general. What, I mean, what do you think is the next big thing in opera? I don't know that the next big thing is small. I'm doing small myself so that I can play in more than five houses across the land. I want to be able to play the Saskatchewan Opera Company. I want it to be a piece that can be played, um, <clears throat> and you don't need to be the Met to play it. So I have a chamber orchestra, and it turns out that your ears adapt, and it is just as big. And when things are distilled, they can have even more power. Uh, that's just practical. That's not an artistic choice. That's a practical choice. And I have found that a constraint squeezes and distills the art. For instance, you put language into the straitjacket of rhythm and rhyme as i.e. poetry and it has much more power than prose you know the, the limitation of having to fit just those syllables and you can only use a word that rhymes with spoon uh, that somehow intensifies the impact of it in photography black and white photography is limited by the only black or white but somehow it can be more powerful than a full-color picture. And that applies across the arts. When you have a limitation, my rock band, all of three of us. Opera is the most fun a composer can have with his clothes on. Oh, my God, that quote will That's, follow me to my grave. Who was that clown who said that? <laughs> oh, wait a minute, come on. Hang gliding? More fun than... I do that without my clothes. Oh, I okay, so that doesn't count. I hang glide buck naked. Stuart Copeland, thank you so much for being on the show with us. Pleasure, thanks for talking. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. He was just so articulate, so humble. Just like so no super... Mozart for him, huh? Yeah, not big on the Mozart, though. God, there's so many Mozart haters out there. I don't trust people who don't like Mozart. He's not a Mozart hater. He's just an other opera composer lover. The show has two more performances coming up. Friday night, Sunday afternoon. I loved it. I highly recommend that if you're in Chicago, you go check it out. After the break, two-minute drill returns. You're going to get all the upper headlines that you need. Stick around. WNUR 89.3 FM. You need these headlines, people. Opera box score. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. One. Behold the angry giant. Try it again, Alberto. Behold the angry giant. Perfect. Good luck tonight. Behold the angry giant. Yay! Read me another one, Dad. This is WWE superstar Alberto Del Rio. It only takes a moment to make a moment. Take time to be a dad today. 
Visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Most of us like to be out in the sun. That's why sunscreen and other safety measures are key to protecting your skin from aging and cancer. The FDA recommends using a sunscreen with an SPF of 15 or higher. Also, look for broad spectrum on the label. That means both harmful ultraviolet A and B rays are blocked. Remember, SPF plus broad spectrum equal healthy fun in the sun. Visit www.fda.gov sunscreen for more information. A message from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Did you know that an estimated 3,000 Americans die each year from a foodborne illness? That's why it's important to always use separate cutting boards for raw meat, raw meat. and vegetables. 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 Clean. Separate. Cook. Chill. To learn more about the four steps to keep your family safe from foodborne illness, please visit foodsafety.gov. This message brought to you by the USDA, HHS, the Ed Council, and WNUR-FM. This just in, the two-minute drill. Time for the fastest headlines in opera news. Everything you need to know in two minutes tops. Last week, Fort Worth Opera parted ways with its general director of 16 years, Darren K. Woods, citing a desire to move the company in different directions financially and artistically. Board chairman Mike Martinez said... FWO terminated Woods' position. The Marilla Opera Program in San Francisco has announced its first ever commission of a new operatic work, which will be written by composer Jake Heggie and librettist Gene Shear. The world premiere of If I Were You will be performed by Marilla Opera Program artists in San Francisco 2019. San Diego Opera lost $271,000 doing its 2015-2016 season. What was able to make up the difference thanks to a surplus from the year before the company announced? Enrique Arturo Dimica, music director of the Buenos Aires Philharmonic, has been appointed artistic general director of the Teatro Colón, the leading opera house in South America. Over to the disabled list, German tenor Jonas Kaufmann pulled out of a London concert of Richard Strauss's works due to bronchitis. Soprano Sonia Yoncheva says she won't sing Tatiana in Eugene Onegin again, canceling Paris in June. Birthdays this month, composer John Adams turned 70, John Williams turned 85, conductor Ricardo Chailly is 64, and on this day in 1816, it was the world premiere of Rossini's The Barber of Seville. That's the two-minute drill. You're listening to Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Oliver Camacho, Tobias Wright, and Dinah Fisher. So a story that didn't make the cut for the two-minute drill, but I wanted to mention was that uh, Preti Yende uh, stepped in for Diana Damrau uh, in Ipuritani. And I'm not sure if that's another one of these manufactured things, you know, but they're really trying to put a lot of... Uh, you know, investment in in Pretty Yende or Pretty Yende, and she deserves it. She's a great singer. She's a beautiful artist. But um, it just seemed odd to me that she would be the one that they would. Ca- I mean, I'm sure Diana Damro had an understudy, right? But instead, they're putting whatever. Anyway, but good for her. Um, the Fort Worth is. is oh, do we have our guest on the on the phone now? Tobias Wright, are you there? I'm here. Oh my God, we miss you so much. There's been so many girls in this studio. We've got this Amber girl, and then we have this Amy girl, and there's this Dinah girl. It's like uh, girls. Well, I miss you. I miss you too. How's everything down in Sarasota? You're singing uh, at Sarasota Opera, Tobias. Yeah, I'm currently with Sarasota. Everything's going really well. Uh, we opened last week, Madame Butterfly and Italiana in Algeri, and nice. then later this week we opened Dialogue of the Carmelites. Nice. So yeah, it's going crazy. It's I, awesome. I gotta ask you, what has been the reaction to the Darren Wood story over there? Well, you know, we actually were talking about it. Um, it was, I think, shocking to a lot of people because he's been there for so long, and it's it's kind of become this institution. And in my opinion, Fort Worth Opera is immensely important to the opera community in the United mm-hmm. States because they've been so daring and forward-thinking with what they've been uh, doing with their programming. So I think it's huge news and. 
that's how I feel. And I other people, I think, were surprised. Go ahead. I don't understand why. I mean, I cannot wait for Darren Woods to, like, spill the beans. Like, what is going on? What type of disagreement did they have? Or was, you know, why didn't they? I don't know. I mean, like, I'm just so blown away by this because everybody has only nice things to say about Darren Woods. And he right. he really turned that company around and made it into what it is. So what are they thinking, you know? He turned the company yeah. around in two different ways. You know, first of all, he moved it to this spring festival mm-hmm. format. That was back in 2007. And over the last 10 years, listen to the roster of operas that he's done. Angels in America, uh, the Philip Glass Hydrogen Jukebox, Jake Heggie's Dead Man Walking, Three Decembers, David T. Little, Dog Days, Kevin Putz's Silent Night. I mean, and then last year, of course, this production of JFK. So he's programming all the right stuff. What is going on? And he's making stars out of these American singers who are singing there. Well, you know? that's, that's my thing, is that he's such a champion of the American singers and the American opera that, that it's it's surprising to me to see it happen because that's what Fort Worth has become known for. And, I mean, if it's a financial thing, I he's an artistic director. I thought that's what... <laughs> I don't know. It seems odd. The timing's odd, too. And it's disappointing. It is disappointing to know that someone in the business who's as respected as he is, loses their job, and then somebody gives the reason as dollar signs. The dollar signs don't add up either, of course, because when you look at the numbers, uh, last year he was able to raise $500,000 in three months. Now, that money was matched by an anonymous donor to cover this projected deficit, but it was successful, and he was able to bring in that money. So whatever the board chairman, Mike Martinez, is saying that he— Woods and the company were going in different directions financially and artistically. There's some big questions about this. Yeah, I know the, the whole story has not been told yet, and I'm I feel really bad for whoever replaces Darren Woods because they're going to have an uphill battle trying to win the trust of uh, all the artists and pr- production designers and et cetera that work there. You know, Tobias, I agree, with, uh, you. I agree with you that on all uh, with with you on that, Oliver. Um, I was thinking it's interesting to have them be that successful. Um, doing what Darren Woods did there and how that's going to be perceived in the rest of the business. I mean, whoever's stepping in there, that's a, that just became a very difficult situation, I think. Yeah. Tobias, what is next on your plate uh, out in Sarasota? <clears throat> um, so we opened Dialogue of the Carmelites um, this week and then uh, La Muerte de Tre Re, a Montemessi opera. Mm-hmm. We opened that next week. With, or, well, I don't know, it's in like two weeks. That's a pretty risky I, season to do Poulenc and Montemezzi. Well, they've done the Montemezzi piece before, and I don't know if you're familiar with the Love of Three Kings at all. I know the I Love of Three Oranges. I don't know the Love of Three Kings. Is it kind of gay? <laughs> no, it's not. It's actually one of the most sexual operas I've ever... Heteronormative um, sexual <laughs> operas? Yes. Oh, yes. boring. Yeah, Disappointing. Yeah. No, it's good stuff, though. It's and it's short. It's like 90 minutes. It's only been performed three times in the United States since the, mm. since the 50s, though, which is weird. Wow. Um, Do you, are you reading one, opera bass like uh, George Cedarquist over here? No. Okay. I, this is what they told us. I oh, guess okay. I just chose to believe it. So Although, you don't. Even, you haven't verified these facts. You're like Trump. You're like, oh, I heard it somewhere. Yeah, that's you know? what I was going to say. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> somebody, somebody gave me this information. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm president. I, I won. <laughs> <laughs> All right, my man. Well, hey, look, Tobias, um, uh, don't work too hard down there. Wait, wait, we're not done with Tobias. We're going to talk about Jonas Kaufman. Did you hear that Jonas Kaufman got back into the game, and now he has bronchitis? I, I, yeah, I'm glad it's just bronchitis, and I hope it really is just bronchitis. Ugh. I mean, he's going to be he's, singing. He's going to be singing Otello soon. That's on his plate for like the next year. I don't know what well, he's thinking. It's like, it's like the Rolando Villazón thing all over again. Like where he starts getting having these vocal problems, and then as opposed to like going backwards and just doing some you know delicate stuff, you know, he's like singing Hoffman and stuff like that, you know. Yeah. Well, and I, I think that's why I'm really hopeful that it is just bronchitis and that it's not continued the bleed. He had he had like bleeding on his vocal cords, yeah. didn't he? Yeah. And that's serious. That takes you out for a while. Yeah. And so for him to come back and then get sick, I really hope it's just sickness. Yeah. Because the via that makes me sad when somebody loses their their freedom to make a noise. I can't imagine. Don't uh, ever let that happen I, to you, Tobias. You protect those little cords of yours. They're so they're so resilient. Take care of them. I will I will Glad take care are. of them. Let's, I will massage them let, every night. Let, let's let's get rid of this guy before it gets too maudlin on this show. <laughs> All right, guys. It was good to talk to you. I miss you both, and I, mm. I will see you soon. All right, buddy. Okay. Ciao. Right, bye. Bye. Working on his tan down there. 
Yeah, hopefully he had his back shaved professionally. I hope so. Like it's hard to get a full tan when you got all that hair. Let me just say that I'm thrilled that the Marilla program is doing a first ever commission. Having been part of the program and loved it, this makes so much sense. It's just this sort of groundbreaking. Who's the composer? Jay Keggy. Oh, okay. I, I, I don't know what it is about. Mm-hmm. It's called If I Were You. I can't say anything more than that. Yeah, well, it's Jake Heggie, so that. people are going to listen to it. Yeah, exactly. It won't be hard for the audience. <laughs> and man, if you're one of the singers at Marilaw, uh-huh. one of the young artists in 2019, and you're going to get to do that show, I mean, that is special. Yeah. That is really, really special. Well, the singers at uh, Chicago Opera Theater, they're all ostensibly that same age range, and they're getting to do... Invention of Morel, you know? I, I thought about that, actually, as I was yeah. watching it. You know, like, when that score is published, all these guys that we know, Dave Govertson, Scott Brunsheen. Yeah. Nathan Granner. Valerie. Ivan Zanya. Like, your name is in the front of the score. In the Wikipedia entry about Stuart Copeland's opera. In yeah. the Wikipedia entry. The whole thing. I mean, and you, you deserve it. Like, it takes a lot of work yeah. to get... To get into that show and then to, to rehearse on the show. And then show. to go into Opera Box Score and have me ask stupid questions and suffer through that, you know? That's the cherry yeah. on the, <laughs> yeah. on the What about the Sonia Yancheva story? Like, she's not going to sing Tatiana anymore because it's beneath her now? I don't get it. Like, yeah. she she's expanding her repertoire and she's doing, to my understanding, like, heavier stuff. Tatiana is... Not the heaviest role, you know, so I don't know what she's talking about over there. She had missed uh, a Manon in Monte Carlo with some back pain. Last summer, she skipped the Salzburg Festival, the Munich Festival. Hmm. She's just getting lazy. I mean, she's she was like a breakout star like two or three years ago. Another one of these to me undeserved. All of a sudden, I'm a star and like I'm getting top billing. And hasn't really proved it to me yet. I know right. I, I'm a total jerk for saying that because everybody who gets that far in their career has worked hard, but I'm not. I have not bought into the Sonia Yancheva thing. So, yeah, I, who knows? Who knows what's going on there? It just seems like making some poor choices, young woman. Making some very poor choices. Mm. Did we I, not cover any of these shows? Did we miss one? Uh. Well, I mean, we're talking about the Maryland thing. San Diego Opera, don't get me started on that. They're, they lost some money, and then they, they were able to make up the money by dipping into their savings. I just, somebody put that company out of its misery. That's, well, that's don't put them say. out of their misery. They need an opera company over there. This is the whole, there was a whole long, long tale about how just, San Diego almost, no, they no. almost folded and they restarted again. I, so, I, yeah. underst- I understand that. Yeah. They, should just, they should take the productions from L.A. and just tour them down to San Diego. Because there's so many companies in LA, it's like 90 minutes, and yeah. just just drive, just import them. That makes the most economic. All right, sense. you heard it here first, folks. We'll see, we'll see what happens. George Dudekus doesn't want original operas at San Diego. He wants them to recycle Los Angeles opera productions. That's not. What That's I said. the future of opera <laughs> in California, the biggest economy in the country. So we're gonna wrap this show up. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. Good call, bad call. Maybe Darren Woods can go and work at San Diego and rescue that opera company. I don't know what he's going to do next. He said he was going to go to upstate New York. Well, he has Seagull Colony, which is still like his farm for growing young American singers. Watch this space. Yeah. What do you got this week, man? You got a good call? You got a bad call? Um, Yeah. I mean, I'm going to go see uh, the David McVicker, Eugene Onegin uh, on Sunday. And I think it's going to be great. It has Ana Maria Martinez in it. It has Marius Kvichin, my boyfriend, in it. Um, and DJ Joe has just walked in the studio, so I don't want you to be jealous. Um, but also, we are at Northwestern University, so we have to, you know, uh, call out when something is good happening. Good is happening here. They're doing Dialogues of the Carmelites starting on Friday. They're doing Friday, Saturday, and Sunday production, and they brought in legendary mezzo soprano Joyce Castle to sing the Old Prioress. So these kids are going to get to sing with like a legend on the stage. They're so, so lucky. So I'm going to try to catch it on Saturday, but if you are in the Evanston, Chicago area, please come to Northwestern and hear Dialogues of the Carmelites. That's it for this week's show. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Amber Carter is our sound technician 
at WNUR. The programming director is Nick Anderson, and the general manager is Brock Stussy. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook and Twitter, search for Opera Box Score. Like our Facebook page, share and comment on our posts, or tweet us at Opera Box Score. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like what you hear, leave a review on iTunes. It'll take you like 30 seconds. It's the cheapest, it's the fastest way for you to help promote our show. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera while you're working on your tan in Chicago in February. We're back next Monday at 9 Central when our announcer, Norm Waddell, joins us live in studio. If you've ever wanted to go behind the scenes of our show, next week is your chance. We're going to talk voiceover work. We're going to talk his career. We're going to talk some opera. Please join us. Argo Radio is up next with DJ Joe. This is WNUR FM Edmondson, Chicago. Chicago Sound Experiment. (laughs) 